Well, welcome Arendelle Bible Chapel family. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My name is Pastor Nick. I am the pastor of Family Ministries here. I get to uh, have the blessing of caring for your kids on a weekly basis as they grow in their love and fear of the Lord. If you're a guest with us this morning, just I want to thank you so much for plugging in. It is a blessing to have you. And I ask that this I hope that this time is um, encouraging and uplifting and really shows you what we believe as a church and what we believe as Christians about who God is and what he's done for us. Um, if you have questions um, after the service, I would love for you just to reach out for a, uh, reach out to us via email or via phone call because we as a church want to help you out on your journey and want to be there for you and with you. Um, today, we'll be continuing in our study of First Peter. Peter continues to encourage the suffering people to remain steadfast um, despite the hardships around them. He reminds them that they suffer just as their Lord suffered, to, and that suffering in this life is nothing compared to suffering at the hands of one who judges all. Last week, um, Ross took us to 1 Peter uh, 4, the beginning of 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, and he really left us with these five um, ways of Christ-like thinking to follow. And I just want to kind of repeat these because I think they're really good. First of all, commitment to holiness. Uh, second of all, a commitment to truthfulness. Third, a commitment to meekness. Fourth, a commitment to trust God with the outcome. Five, commitment to serve God no matter the cost. As we've been through the book of First Peter, we've been really challenged of what it looks like to remain a Christian despite suffering and trials around us. We have looked at what it looks like. We've studied what it means to live a Christ-like life in the midst of a culture that's against you. And today, we're going to look at the urgency of that life, the urgency of the call to follow Christ. We will be continuing the book of 1 Peter, and we'll be specifically looking at um, Verses um, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. For you and you, if you've never been to church, you don't normally go to church. Peter is a book in the New Testament and is a book written to a group of suffering Christians who have barely really felt the persecution um, under a crazy um, Caesar named Nero. And so Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus, someone who followed Jesus around, we called him disciples. Um, Peter is now writing, to, um, later on, Peter he is now writing to these Christians um, about how to remain steadfast. And today we're going to talk about the urgency of remaining steadfast. And so the title of today's sermon, coming from chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, is this Living in the light of eternity, how do I live between the forever and now? I'll repeat that. Living in the light of eternity, how do I live between the forever and now? Let me read God's word. I'm going to pray before we get into this. So this is 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Father, for your Son. I pray as we go into your word, the truth of your word, the, the iron, the, the, the sword um, of the Spirit, this, this sword-cutting word that, that takes us down to the bone and marrow, may your word do a work in our hearts today. Lord, may this word um, preach change um, my heart as um, much as it changes the hearts of those who hear. May we be, feel the call that this word has for us to live urgently, to live in light of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would, would um, open up the hearts to hear. And Lord, may I speak in a way that, that presents you truthfully. In your son's name, amen. Some of you may know today that it is mine and Emily's sixth wedding anniversary. Um, it may not, six years may not seem like to be a lot to you to some people, uh, but there are a lot to us. Uh, six years represents uh, trials that we've had to go through, suffering that we've gone through, joys that we've gone through, happiness that we've gone through, changes, moves. Within our six years, we've lived in three different cities, three different states, two countries. And when six years, every anniversary, we're reminded of what God is doing in our life. I remember when I started dating Emily, I knew um, she was different. Uh, when all the girls her age were, were dying for attention from people who, who just wanted to people to see them, Emily had a quiet spirit that I noticed. Emily was beautiful. She, she wore these, almost always wore a blue shirt with her short hair. I remember seeing her as I was walking around campus. I noticed her. And finally, I, I mean, I asked her out, and she said yes. After dating for a few months, I, I knew Emily was the one. And I began to save for a ring. I began to save money. It was difficult. At that time, I was going to school full-time, and I was working um, part-time as a waiter. But I knew how important it was. I, I knew that I wanted to marry this girl. And so I worked hard that summer. I worked extra hours, I saved up money, I ate very cheap food, and you can do that when you're 24 years old, 25 years old, and I began to save up money for a ring. I would take a percentage of cash from each shift and place it into this envelope each week. And each week I would save and that envelope would grow bigger. And as the summer passed, the envelope would be thick enough. And I remember, I remember studying what type of ring she wanted. I remember looking and going, okay, what am I going to get? And then finally that day came and I, and I got, went to the one jewelry store that had a Canadian diamond because that's what she wanted was a, a diamond from Canada. And I went to that one store in all of the city and I laid down that, that money and said, I want that ring. And, at that day, and on that day, all my sacrifices, all my hard work, all my, 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 my patience and all of my yearning for that ring came into focus. I knew what I wanted. I knew that this ring meant more 
than just a ring, but I was excited that that ring was now going to be mine to give to my future wife. Knowing that what the sacrifice was made the sacrifice easy. Knowing what the sacrifice stood for in the end made the daily commitment much more manageable. And in today, Peter, uh, the, in today's passage, Peter does just that. He provides his persecuted audience, his suffering audience, his, his audience going through trials, a glimpse of reality that they might have hope to keep pursuing. And also, while giving them a glimpse of the end, he also says the end is near be ready. See, when I was uh, saving up money for a ring, I knew that I wanted to marry this girl. I wanted to marry her now. And I didn't want to wait. So I had a yearning, an intense focus. And Peter is trying to inspire these people, trying to encourage these people that the end may see far, but it's not. It is urgent. And now live as though it is urgent that the end may be near so we begin in our book and this is in verse 7 where he says the end of all things is at hand and that brings us to our first point for today the reminder of eternity the reminder of eternity from verse 7 peter begins this first section of this passage right here that we're looking at with this with what is at stake I think he's continuing the call of urgency that he's kind of looked back to back in 1 Peter 4, 5, where he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And he gives them this reminder of what is really happening. He says this, he says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is near. It's very interesting how many of the writers of scriptures wrote about time. We see Jesus in Matthew 24, he's, he's talking to these people and he says, uh, concerning the last days, concerning the end of time, he says this, but, the concerning, but concerning that day, this is Matthew 24, 36 through 44, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the end days. So will be that last moment. Then two of men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be at the grinding mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. For yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter, in his second, in his second letter to these same um, oppressed people, he says this. This is uh, 2 Peter 3.8-13. But do not overlook this one fact beloved that with one day is as of thousand with one day of the lord is as of a thousand years and a thousand years is of one day the lord is not slow to work to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance but the day of the lord will come like a thief what we see with the, the new the writers of the new testament is a sense of urgency 
The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus began a new time, began a new what we call part of redemptive history. No longer was there something waiting to be fulfilled, but it was fulfilled in Christ. And when Christ died and rose again, we now move to what the the New Testament writers call the end days. So often we get kind of lulled into sleep, huh? See, the, the writers of the New Testament were, were in between this, this reality. They lived in between this tension, what I like to call the forever and for now. Let's listen how Paul deals with this tension. First of all, he goes to 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let's not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. This is very similar to that part where he talks about the thief of the night. He's, he's saying it can come at any moment, so let's not sleep. Let's be ready. Let's be on guard because this is an urgent call that any moment the end can come and Christ can return. But we also see this same person, Paul, in 1 Timothy 1, 3 saying this. I mean, in First uh, Timothy one, uh, tw- I mean Acts twenty seventeen, say this. Now, from Miletus, uh, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders to the of the church to come to him. Of uh, the elders of the church to come to him, and then uh, when, talking about First Timothy one three, he spent um, talking to Timothy and saying, "As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to preach any different doctrine." So what we see with here, Paul, is Paul's living in this tension. Living this tension at forever and for now. In the tension, he, in the tension, he says, let us not sleep, let us be on guard, let us be ready that the end can come at any moment. But also, I'm going to set up leaders in the church at Ephesus to make sure that they are prepared for that day. I'm going to send Timothy, my, my, my protege, and I'm going to send him into Ephesus so certain people will not speak, uh, speak wrong doctrine and we we now inherit that that kind of that kind of that tension that eternity sits in the forefront and can come at any moment but also we plan to live for the future one thing I think has really messed this up is the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic has kind of thrown everything into a little bit of a limbo. I mean, first of all, when the pandemic happened, we're like, okay, we're just going to wait this out. We're going to wait this out. And it just took a couple months, and we'll, everything will get back to normal. And next, you know, a couple months passed. I don't worry, but a couple more months passed. A couple more months. And now we're, now we're just at over a year. And we're saying this might be another year. And in this moment, I mean, me and my wife were talking about it. We felt like we are in this word limbo. And we keep telling people how people ask us how we're doing. Like, we really feel in limbo right now. And there was a point in time when I began to think and I began to realize what that word meant and what was really happening. See, the pandemic threw everything into chaos, but now everything is kind of stopped waiting for the chaos to end. Forgetting that the world didn't quit spinning the moment that quarantine happened. That people kept dying who, without knowing Christ, even though... We can't go out to eat. Even though we can't meet as a church, as a body, it doesn't mean that people aren't still suffering. See, all limbo means is a, state, is a false state of being that it, make, it gives us a, 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 a reason not to heed this call from um, Peter that the end is near. The question is, do we live like it? 
Do we live in that tension of forever and for now? Do we live in that tension of eternity is just a moment away? Do we? What I love is Peter now will kind of give us some, some details of how to live in that tension. He'll give us some ways in which the, our hearts can be for, and, and inflamed and, and, and encouraged and um, brought, brought more in understanding of that moment of that tension and how to live in it and how to act in it as Christians in the tension. So he begins by this and he says it in verse 7b. Therefore, so because of this thing, because of the end is near. Now, therefore, this is how you will act. This is how this is how you should be. This is how you should live. Therefore, because the end is near, because there's an urgent call. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is a very interesting wording. I mean, I, I read multiple translations, and the way they translated was so confusing to me. Um, they kept, and it, it really made it seem as though um, Peter was was saying, "My actions will affect my prayers. My actions will my my sober mindedness and self control will affect my prayers." And it seemed really weird. And I began to just really dive in to try to figure out why they were going. And I finally got to the point where I was like, "Okay, okay, I can see what's happening." I can see what's going because the ideas of prayers, actions is already seen in this book. First Peter three, seven. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered so that your prayers don't will not be hindered. Husbands live with your wives in a gracious, kind way. So your prayers would not be hindered. First Peter three twelve. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to his prayers. The Lord sees his people and he hears their prayers. And so we come to this and we can we can kind of think that way that our actions will affect the hearing of the Lord. And it's not abnormal. It's not wrong. But I don't think that's the the, the call. I don't think that's the point. What what Peter is trying to get to an um, to uh, people who he's trying to say urgent be ready be be on guard be 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 forceful be ready here is how you should pray this is how you should act in order to be ready so he says be self-control and sober mindedness and i think these are kind of going against what he had just kind of it's like the opposite of how he talked about people living in verse uh Two and three. So as they live the rest of time, they uh, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and law. So that is an uncontrolled life. That is a life that is given over to passions. And the other word sober minus really means not drunk. It means Ah, drunk. No, I'm not drunk. So my mind is clear. My mind is ready. And the other one's self-control. There's nothing hindering my thoughts. And I think what Peter is trying to get across here, and I think is really important, is in an urgent time, in an urgent moment, we need to be ready to pray at all times. Emily and I like to watch a show called MASH. 
don't know if any of you have seen it. It's, I think it's from 1960s, 1970s. It's this army show in which this medical unit's on the front lines caring for victims as they come in from the battlefield. And this mash unit was what it's called. Uh, mash unit is what it's called. It has these three surgeons. And throughout the whole series, there's one surgeon named Hawkeye who is there throughout all of the seasons. And Hawkeye is a very funny character. He's sarcastic. He's very just trying to deal with the war in his own way. But what's very interesting is Hawkeye, he's either in surgery or in his tent. He's rarely ever doing something else. Oh, he's talking to girls too. But he's in surgery or mainly in his tent. And in his tent, he's drinking. Like, every single time you see him in his tent, he has some gin on him, and he's drinking. And I, I began to think about this one, one, one afternoon when we were watching the show. And I'm like, this surgeon is constantly drunk. Whenever you see him, he's drinking. And in, at any moment, he can be expected to go have to do surgery on some 18-year-old kid who just got shot in the lake. Who's, who is relying on him to care for his body. And it was so crazy to me that he's never prepared. He's never really ready because he's always drunk trying to deal with his, um, his dealings with the war. And I think that this is what this passage is trying to do. Just think about Ephesians where Paul says, do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Peter is saying here, do not be um, living in a way that you cannot be ready to pray at all times. Because it's urgent. Because it's important. Are you always on, ready to pray? Is your mind always in a state where it's ready to pray? Or is there something hindering you? Is there some aspect of your life that's not self-controlled, not sober-minded, that it doesn't allow you to be ready to pray? Because prayer is important. Prayer is dependence. Prayer, like, uh, prayer for in, uh, an eternal um, word, an eternal mindedness demonstrates that we really need God to keep going and we really need God to work on our behalf. One of the greatest prayers I think that we could come to and definitely when it comes to a prayer um, in light of eternity, a prayer that looks in, in, into the future and says this is how I want this is how I want everything to be is the Lord's prayer. In Jesus' prayer and model prayer in Matthew 6, we see him praying for God's name to be made great, great, made hollow. We see that he wants God's kingdom to come. We see that he wants his daily needs to be met. And we see that he wants us to have grace-filled relationships. And so he has this, this, this prayer life that's, um, this, we have this prayer life that's always ready, always on guard, always really going to say, hey, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray through this. I'm ready to pray. My mind's ready for this because I'm not um, giving over to the passions of the flesh because my mind is not drunk. And then we pray, God, do a work. When you're on your way to work, do you pray, God, do a work today? Hey, when, you, when you're dropping your kids off at school, God, work in my kids' hearts. They keep them safe. When you're about to eat food, God, thank you for this food. When you're reading the newspaper, praying for these people who, whose maybe lives have been changed. When you're um, thinking through what I'm going to go get groceries, I'm praying. When you're about to go to the, the um, restaurant to get food, I mean, you're going to pray that maybe you can talk to the, um, the waiter or waitress or the, person, the cashier. Prayer. Always being ready for prayer. Does your prayer life 
reflect a life that is in this tension between the forever and for now. Between the forever and for now. Do you pray in a way that sees that Jesus can come tomorrow? Peter continues in verse 8. And that is my second point, my third point. Love in light of eternity. Love in light of eternity. So in verse 8, Peter says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter really then begins to move on to this idea of a community aspect. What does it mean now to love in the midst of a church, in the midst of relationships? And he says, love, therefore, earnestly. Love love greatly, love powerfully, love beyond what other people expect, since love covers a multitude of sin. He's actually quoting Proverbs 10, 12. Here, and it's a very interesting, you know, a lot of commentators going back and forth. What do they think he's actually saying here? And I think... Um, the point here is in Peter is saying that the love that that we have for each other is so great it's willing to oversee the small nuances the small faux pas the small failures that we will have um, when it comes to relationships when it comes to relationships we will hurt each other we will um, um, be broken but because we have a love that's so deep. We're willing to look past it. We're willing to forgive. Uh, I think uh, uh, what Peter's talking about, the love that he's called, I like to call it grace-filled love. The, the love that Peter Peter's trying to portray here, he's trying to get across as what I call grace-filled love. Christians are known for being loving people. Because why? Why should Christians, why are Christians known for being the loving people? Because they've experienced the greatest love. Why should Christians always be known as the love, most loving people? Because they have experienced the greatest love. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because they do not know him. See what kind of love the Father has given us. Because we are called the children of God. 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And this is love, not that we have loved God. We were actually against God. We were rebellious against God. And God loved us and sent his son to die for us. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. Finally, uh, Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But, but God shows his love um, for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Christians demonstrate deep love for others because of the deep love they have experienced. Peter calls them to love each other in a way that allows for the brokenness, allows for the understanding that other people struggle to. Peter calls them to love each other in a way that allows brokenness because they understand the brokenness Jesus died for. 
See, grace-filled love produces grace-filled relationships that gives grace-filled preference to the other's needs. When, G- when Paul, Peter, sorry, when Peter says, love each other since love covers a multitude of sin, what he's saying is, love each other as you have experienced the love of the Father himself who gave up his son for you. Now, how can you hold someone else's sin against you? How can you hold it against them? It's like, when, when you have the, the parable of the, two, of the servant who goes to the master and he owes him 10,000 talents and the master says, I've forgiven you. And then he goes to the, young, the other servant and says, you owe me 10 bucks. And then the guy, he throws him into prison. And this is how it finishes up. This is Matthew 18, 32 and 33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you of all the debt because you pleaded with me. And you should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you. See, this is the love that Peter is calling us to have with each other. A grace-filled love that produces grace-filled relationships that gives grace-filled preference to the other person's needs. When we live urgently in light of eternity, we hold short accounts of what people have wronged us against. When we realize that tomorrow Christ could return, we hold short accounts against those who we feel have harmed us. Why? Because God holds nothing against us. Because God holds no wrongings that we've done against him, against us. We're free of all that. We're, we're forgiven of everything so we can forgive others. So the question I have for you is, is there someone here that you're holding a grudge against? Is there someone here within our church, within, within your life, that you're angry against or holding a sin against? And how does that affect if you saw Jesus tomorrow? I mean, this is seen, no, I mean, this is seen so, I, I, I have never seen this so as much clearly as I have in marriage. In marriage, you love each other, you care about each other, but you can get on each other's nerves. And you have to learn to hold a short account and forgive greatly. Not, not forget, forgive. My wife shows me so much forgiveness, so much grace, when I don't deserve it. And I pray that in our, in our church, in our church, if someone, if someone has wronged you or if you've wronged someone, make short account of that because tomorrow Jesus could return. Grace-filled love produces grace-filled relationships that gives grace-filled preference to others. We continue on. And he goes, says, now love one another because it covers a multitude of sin. And he says, be hospitable without grumbling. Very interesting. So we've talked about uh, we've talked about our prayers. Very holy thing. We've talked about loving each other even when it's hard. And now we're talking about be hospitable without complaining. I mean, hospitality in the Bible is so big. Hospitality in Scripture is massive. In the Old Testament, we can see it as a greeting with a bow or kiss, a welcome of a guest to come in. An invitation to rest in one's home, an opportunity to wash, a provision of food or drink, an invitation just to talk with each other, and ultimately a provision of security when there was no hotels or inns during that time. In the New Testament, one commentator spoke of hospitality in this way. In the New Testament, Jesus urged hospitality to be extended beyond the
One commentator spoke of Jesus' view of hospitality in this way. In the New Testament, Jesus urged hospitality beyond uh, the confines of home and tribe, as illustrated in the parable of the midnight visitor, Luke 5, 1-8. In the Good Samaritan, also, ministering to the needy is clearly expected by God, as made evident in Jesus' instruction regarding the judgment on the nations, feeding the hungry, quenching the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, visiting the imprisoned. Failure to, hosp- to offer hospitality incurs judgment. Jesus scolded Simon the Pharisee for being a poor host. Hospitality is, a, is expected among church leadership. 1 Timothy 3, 2, therefore, uh, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. 1 Timothy 1, 8 says that, but they need to be hospitable. So we, and we see within the early church that hospitality played a major role in people coming to, know, coming to faith in Christ. One Nero was writing to a, a letter to a, one of the um, kings, and he was encouraging them to help. How, how, do Christ, how are the Christians growing? And he says it's because they bring people in. They care for those who aren't of their own. They care for the sick. They care for the widows. So why is hospitality such an important factor? Why do we see hospitality in, as an urgent call? Because God shows us hospitality and care for you. Listen to this by Scott Cumrode. Why did they do this? Why did Christians show hospitality? Our Christian motivation for extending hospitality to the stranger is our experience of receiving hospitality from God himself. We were estranged from God with no claims on God, but God in his great love for us offered us hospitality while we were yet sinners. He invited us into his household, not just as guests, but as adopted joint heirs with Christ. And that hospitality came at a cost. His son. His son had to suffer and die for us so that we might have experience and experience at God's table. An amazing story of this is of hospitality it comes from Rosaria Butterfield. If you've never read her book, um, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith, I mean, I, I would highly recommend reading. It's an amazing journey. Um, but uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a, uh, a part of the LGBT culture, and uh, she was an English professor, I think, at Syracuse. And she begins to talk about her, her journey into, uh, into knowing Christianity, into learning about Christianity, and how hospitality of a pastor and his wife to this lesbian um, professor who was antagonistic to Christians, the hospitality of this pastor and wife um, eventually led her to knowing Christ. But she speaks of this, and she spoke of the, the hospitality they had within her own culture, how they always had dinner with each other. And when she became a Christian, that mindset stayed. That mindset of her home was always a welcoming place to other people. It was to be a refuge for those who are weak, a, a home for those who are homeless, a place that someone could have a hot meal um, when they might not have a hot meal for the rest of the week. And it was her own. She speaks of having people over for dinner and asking them to help her do with their la- help her do her laundry before dinner because her and her husband wanted people to feel like family. One thing I love about Butterfield's comments is, is this is an amazing gener- uh, um, showing of hospitality, but I love her comments, and she says, I mean, this is what me and my husband do. But 
You and your families need to have the question, how will we be hospitable? How are we going to pray and ask the Lord how to be, how for us to be hospitable? Because when we are hospitable in the light of eternity, our houses become our sacred place of rest to get away from the world. But it is a gift of God to be a refuge for others. Let me repeat that. When we are hospitable in light of eternity, our house becomes not a sacred place of rest, but it is a gift of God to be a refuge for others. How do you see your house? In light of eternity, in light of forever, in light of Jesus could come back tomorrow, how do you see your house? Is your house open to strangers? Is your house open um, to other people? Is your house a refuge for those who are weak? This is very interesting to talk about hospitality in the midst of a pandemic. It's very interesting to talk about hospitality when you can't go into other people's houses. Here's a couple suggestions. I, I read off a web a um, off of the Gospel Coalition Canada. Um, this one lady wrote about how to be hospitable in the midst of a pandemic. It says, "Go for a walk with somebody." Yeah, maybe you can't have them into your house. Maybe that's not, maybe we shouldn't be doing that, but we can go for a walk with each other. Meet outside in a safe and comfortable way. Maybe, maybe you can't go into each other's house, but maybe you can sit around a fire, socially distanced, and still talk and, and interact with people because maybe that's the only interaction they have. Utilize technology, take advantage of the technology we currently possess. But in all this, making other people feel comfortable. The point is, hospitality cannot go on hiatus just because a pandemic is here. How are we going to be hospitable as Christians? How are we going to show the loving hospitality God has shown us to bring us into his family and by bringing other people into our family, um, even through a pandemic, even through what would be limbo? We'll continue. So we've talked about praying in light of eternity. We've talked about we talked about praying in light of eternity. We talked about loving in light of eternity. We've talked being hospitable in light of eternity. Now we're talking about serving in light of eternity. Peter goes and he begins talking. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. He, he begins, but he finishes up um, these, 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 these calls he's kind of had by saying serve faithfully serve as the gift god has given you um paul talks about this for in first corinthians 12 12 through 14 for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ for one spirit we are all baptized into one body jews greeks slaves are free and all people are made to drink of one spirit for the body does not consist of one member but of many Peter goes and he's telling this church who he's calling to be urgent, to be ready, to be prepared for Christ can come at any moment. He says, serve faithfully with the gift God has given you. I love how he says that because he doesn't expect you to do other people's jobs. He doesn't expect you to use other people's gifts. He doesn't expect you to preach. He doesn't expect you to, to work in the kids ministry, which I would love. But he doesn't expect you to do that. He doesn't expect you to be part of the youth ministry. He just expects you to serve where God has gifted you. That may be through words, discipling. That may be through words, speaking like I'm speaking. Maybe that's through words, through teaching a kid's Sunday school class or teaching ESL. Maybe that's through serving as being a part of the media team. Maybe that's serving as being a part of the of the band or something there is something but he says urgently because christ can return at any moment serve faithfully and serve in the power of god 
there's two things that we can fall into, two, two, two almost um, opposing views. First of all, we can fall into this thing that, oh, we're going to do whatever people ask us out of the fear of man. We're going to do whatever people want us to do, whatever people ask us. There's always those people um, where they do whatever you want because they're, just kind of, they're kind of afraid of man. They're not really serving for the Lord. They think they are, they may be, and they really have a genuine heart, but they fear man, they're afraid to say no. And so they're not doing it through God's power. But then we have the other person. We have the other side. By which um, people um, just don't think they have the time to serve. They just go, well, man, I understand that's good for you, Nick. You get paid. I understand that's good for the people. That's what they enjoy. They have the time. But, Nick, you don't understand. My job is way too busy. I just, I never have any time. I'll never have time for serving the church. And in light of eternity... In light of the end is near, in light of Christ can come tomorrow, is your time too valuable today? Living in that tension, it's difficult. Living in the tension of forever and for now, we look at our time and we go, God, how can we use this more profitably? Maybe your job is too busy, but maybe there's a way to get around that. If your job is always constantly too busy for you to serve in the church, maybe you have to kind of rethink of that job. Maybe it's just a season. That's perfectly fine. Perfectly understandable. But Peter is talking to a group of people. He's urgently, the end is near. How are you faithfully serving the church? I was talking to the kids, the students the last few weeks. And I'm telling you, these sixth, these sixth through ninth graders, do you realize that if you do not serve the body of Christ with your gifts that God has given you, then our body is not working functionally. Our body is not working at full function. So I ask you today, are you serving? How are you using the gifts that God has given you? Or is your time too valuable? Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're just doing everything that people are asking you to do. And you're saying, yes, 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 yes. And I'm saying, is that God's power? Maybe someone else could be doing this. Someone, someone has a gift that they're not utilizing because of um, you're just saying yes to everybody. Let me finish up with this. Peter finishes up with this little phrase right here. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In order that God would be in glory, in order that this that God would be made us uh, made um amazing that god would be made as huge in other people's eyes the end is near therefore pray well therefore be hospitable. therefore love therefore serve to bring god glory and i love how he, he puts this little phrase through jesus we bring glory to god only through jesus we pray earnestly to god only through Jesus. We love graciously in grace-filled relationships only through Jesus. We serve mightily and powerfully only through Jesus. It's only through the cross that any of this is possible. When Jesus died on the cross, he proved all of this to be true. He proved that there was a eternity. He proved that we need to know God. He proved that the cross proves that we need to be made right with God. Because of the cross, eternity becomes real to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can someone say there is no resurrection? He finishes with this. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Because of the cross, 
We know that Jesus is coming back because of the cross. We know we can have hope for the future because of the cross. We can live faithfully in the tension of forever and for now. The question that we have is for you. We have a question that you must take in and, and, and kind of um, look over your life is, are you living in light of the cross, in light of eternity? Are you living today in that tension between forever and for now? Are you living as your promise tomorrow? Are you waiting to come know God once you've met your goals? Are you waiting to become a member of the church once life gets back to normal? Are you waiting to connect with a growth group once the pandemic ends? Peter begins this passage by saying the end of all things is at hand. Tomorrow Jesus can come. Paul says it's like a thief in the night. You never know when it's going to come. What, do you, what needs to change in your life in light of eternity? What needs to change in light of your life, in your life in light of eternity? Eternity will come eventually. It may come tomorrow. Are we living prepared for the return of Christ? Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that yet eternity maybe is real, but because of your son, we know that we will be with you one day. Lord, I pray for those in here who are waiting for tomorrow to change, to see you. I pray that they would come to know you, that they would repent of their sins and, and come before you. Lord, I pray for those who are, have hidden sin, um, that they would be um, upfront about it, that they would repent of it, that they would um, confess it, knowing that you are a great Father. Lord, I pray that we would live in that tension of forever and for now. Lord, you are so good. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In your son's name, amen.